Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 162 for the second half of April 2017. The topic I'm going to talk about today is refuting geocentrism by young Earth creationists. The basic claim for this episode is that Earth, at the very least, is the center of the solar system, and at the most, it's the center of everything. The term comes from geo, meaning Earth, and centrism for center. Now, you may be thinking that this sounds a little bit like episode 78, where I covered geocentrism. Or, you may be thinking that this sounds a little like episode 152, where I covered how young Earth creationists were debunking flat Earth ideas. In fact, this is sort of a mishmash of the two, where I'm going to use the same Young Earth Creationism website, Creation Ministries International, or CMI, and I'm going to go through their arguments against geocentrism and discuss. For those who may not remember five months back, or for new listeners, I want to briefly rehash why I think a Young Earth Creationism website would try to debunk geocentrism. I think that the fundamental reason is that they recognize that people are going to use what they consider a literal reading of the Bible, the Christian Bible in particular, and use that to infer geocentrism. But CMI recognizes that there are just, well, there are just some ideas that are so fundamentally and obviously conflicting with the most basic of observational science these days that it's obvious geocentrism is wrong. And if people that CMI is trying to convince that the Christian Bible is real see that people are going to be using the Christian Bible, that same book, as evidence for geocentrism, they're going to lose a potential convert before they've even started. My own motivation for doing this kind of episode is to demonstrate perhaps a lighter side of skepticism. Too often, skeptics themselves are drawn into a situation where a person or a group of people are so wrong so many times about so many different things that we wouldn't even believe them if they said the sky is blue. I think that it's important to show that at least some people on the other side of the issues are able to have a very intelligent and reasoned argument on the side of reality for certain topics. CMI wrote two main articles about geocentrism. The first is a very, very lengthy article from February 2015 by Robert Carter and Jonathan Sarfati entitled, Why the Universe Does Not Revolve Around the Earth. It has the subtitle, Refuting Absolute Geocentrism. They followed that article with a shorter one in September of 2016, only attributed to Robert Carter entitled, Refuting Absolute Geocentrism, with the subtitle, Refutation of Our Detractors. A large part of the first article is devoted to history, while only maybe the last quarter or third is under the heading Supporting Evidence, or Why the Earth Cannot Be at the Absolute Center. What I'm going to do in this episode is, or at least the main segment, is briefly go through some of their original arguments and then go through their refutations of refutations. In reading through both articles, the refutes of the four arguments I'm going to talk about from the original article are really not that interesting or meaningful, so I'm going to skip them. CMI's first line of evidence that I'm going to discuss is speed of objects in the universe. 
This is actually one that I never thought of, but it's quite ingenious, if I do say so myself. They provide a few examples, and I'm going to start with the last one first. Geostationary satellites are satellites that are at a constant position above Earth's surface. A geostationary satellite works because any position above Earth requires a satellite to move at a certain speed to maintain that orbit, or that distance above the planet. Closer in, you move really quickly. Farther out, you can move more slowly. There's a sweet spot where you move at just the same speed that Earth rotates, and therefore you maintain your position. It's something any classical mechanics student can calculate, and it's about 35,786 kilometers or 22,236 miles above Earth's equator. If you do the calculation yourself, remember to factor in Earth's own radius to get distance from the center versus the surface. But geostationary satellites can't work in a geocentric universe. For it to work, somehow, the satellite has to just be placed there and then never, ever move. Somehow maintaining its position stationary above Earth like magic. Another example that they gave deals with any object, including sending space probes, beyond Neptune. Remember that in geocentrism, the entire universe is moving around Earth, and Earth is stationary. Earth doesn't even rotate. That means that any object in the sky, at Neptune's distance or farther, still has to move all the way around Earth in a single day. In fact, well, any object, the Sun's distance or Mars's distance, whatever, all of those objects, in order to get from one position in the sky one day to the same position in the sky the next day, have to move all the way around in their orbit around Earth in order to get there. Therein lies the problem. The CMI article points out that the orbit of Neptune, the distance that it would have to travel, that circumference to go around Earth, at the distance from Earth, in one day, is more than one light day long, meaning that Neptune and everything beyond Neptune has to travel faster than light. While that's one problem, it gets worse. Let's say that somehow that's possible. What about sending a probe beyond Neptune, like we did with the Voyager spacecraft, the Pioneer spacecraft, as well as New Horizons, which I'm sure all of you are sick about hearing about from at this point. Now, if we just shot the probe from Earth and aimed, suddenly we would have to accelerate the probe at faster than the speed of light to catch up to these objects, meaning that not only does the probe have to travel to get to the distance that these objects are, but the probe has to get up to the same velocity as that object so that it has any chance of seeing it for more than a tiny fraction of a second. A third example that CMI article points out is the moon. In a heliocentric model, the moon orbits Earth in about a month, but in a geocentric model, the moon orbits Earth in about 25 hours. We know how far away the moon is, and so we can calculate how fast it would have to move under either model. We also know how fast the Apollo craft were launched from Earth. They never would have gotten to the moon, never would have been able to match its speed, if we lived in a geocentric universe. A second argument that the CMI article used is another one that I really like, not only in its simplicity, but its stupidity under a geocentrism model. We know that after a large earthquake, something that's rotating changes. 
What I mean is that we can look at and precisely measure star positions and the time that it takes stars to reach certain positions in the sky before and after large earthquakes. And they're different. Under a heliocentric model, the earthquake has affected Earth's rotation rate. The effect is only at the scale of milliseconds or less, but it's noticeable with modern equipment. But under geocentrism, the earthquake, as in a rumbling of our planet, has not affected the Earth at all, but it's instead caused the entire rotation of every object in the universe to be altered slightly. Which do you think is more likely? Another type of argument that CMI made is that Earth's equatorial bulge is explained the same way as other planets with bulges. Rotation. For example, if you look at Jupiter even with decent binoculars, you can tell that it has a large bulge at its equator. It's not spherical. Saturn, too, and Uranus, Neptune, even Mars and Earth have equatorial bulges. The Sun does not. But the sun takes about a couple weeks to rotate once. Actually, different parts of the sun rotate at different speeds, but the fastest part still takes weeks. Mercury also doesn't have an equatorial bulge, but it takes about three months to rotate once. Pluto doesn't have a bulge either, but it takes 6.8 days to rotate once on its axis. So, all reasonably fast rotators in the solar system have an equatorial bulge. Under geocentrism, you then have to argue that Earth is somehow special, and its bulge is due to a completely different mechanism than every other body's. I personally don't care for this particular argument as much as the others, because the whole idea of geocentrism is one case after another of special pleading, so this idea of Earth being special for yet another reason isn't really going to be a barrier for most geocentrists. The final argument from the original article that I'm going to address ties in nicely with the last episode, Coriolis Force. Just as the previous argument was about equatorial bulges and Earth being special or not, we see the effects of a Coriolis Force on other planetary bodies like Jupiter, Saturn, Neptune, and Mars. We can see giant storms in the atmospheres of these bodies and see that they rotate exactly as you would predict from Coriolis forces. So, we know that Coriolis forces are real. They work. Well, they're as real as a fictitious force can be. Again, see the last episode if you don't understand that reference. Uh, But in geocentrism, Earth is stationary. It doesn't rotate. So then, you'd have to ask a geocentrist, why do we see the effects of Coriolis forces on Earth when Coriolis forces only exist on a rotating body? In the second article, going through some of the claims made by CMI's detractors, one of the first is gravity. I love CMI's header with this claim. It starts out with, Sadly, we saw multiple examples of a failure to understand basic science. Pot, meet the kettle. My snide aside, aside, geocentrists had come back to CMI and said, Since gravity only acts at the speed of light, although some geocentrists say that it has an infinite velocity, how can planets know that a gravitational object is there in order to stay in their orbit? The answer is quite simple. Uh, Let's take now, for example. Right now, the knowledge that the sun is where it is is going to take about 8.3 minutes to get to Earth. But that doesn't mean that Earth can do whatever the heck it likes for the next 8.3 minutes, because 
8.3 minutes ago, the sun also told Earth where it is through gravity, propagating at the speed of light, and 8.3 minutes before that, and all of the time in between. It's not as if the clock starts on gravity propagation at the moment the geocentrist asks their question. It's always there. A similar claim that geocentrists brought up was, how should planets and other bodies allegedly in orbit around the sun not fall into the sun? Well, one could ask the same question about how could they not fall into Earth, but eh, moving on, the answer is their velocity in their orbit. They're moving at the right speed parallel to the surface of the sun at each moment to counterbalance the speed with which they would fall into the sun. It's the same thing as I explained with geostationary satellites. And these objects, you know, planets, moons, satellites, uh, asteroids, whatever, they don't need engines strapped to their butts to keep it up because of Newton's first law. Objects maintain their velocity unless acted on by an external force. With nothing to slow the planet down in our current solar system, like gas drag in the early solar system, the planets maintain their orbits. Skipping ahead two sections in their second article, CMI pointed out many problems with the geocentrist model if they try to use gravity to keep Earth at the center of everything. Somehow, everything has to balance out perfectly to keep Earth's gravitational point at zero. That literally means that if a tiny comet moves by, that's going to change the balance and Earth will no longer be at the center. Or when we launch space probes, again, with Newton's laws, equal opposite reaction, as soon as we launch a space probe, Earth is no longer going to be at the exact center. And yet, somehow it still is, because that, by definition, is geocentrism. Earth is at the center. The same thing goes with balancing the sun. The sun is by far the dominant gravitational force on Earth, and yet for us to be at the gravitational center of everything, there must be a perfect balance elsewhere. How? Where? Uh, there's just simply no evidence of this, and you can't use the claim that we're balanced at the center as evidence for a missing counterweight to the sun. In other words, you can't use the claim as evidence for the claim. The next section addressed four examples of non-Newtonian issues raised by geocentrists. I'm just going to quote from the article about GPS and time dilation. We see that geocentrists reject time dilation in general, claiming that clocks slow down because of the mechanical effects of gravity or inertial forces. We wonder how an atomic clock, the only clocks sensitive enough to detect time dilation, that is in turn based on molecular vibrations in crystals, is subject to mechanical interference. Also, the amount of time dilation in GPS satellites is exactly the amount predicted by Einstein, before the technology to measure time dilation was possible. How can anyone say, no one has detected time dilation, as at least one prominent geocentrist does, without first rejecting the experimental results that support it? Again, I feel that I have to point out that this last sentence is a case of cognitive dissonance with young Earth creationists' own thought processes regarding the age of, well, certain things. I'm going to skip the second example and move to their third, which is redshift and blueshifted light. Specifically, we also saw several examples of people rejecting redshift, blueshift for calculating local motion, but nobody explained why, when we measure absorption lines in hydrogen here on Earth, those same apparent absorption lines seen in interstellar objects are shifted one way or the other. 
Some contradicted themselves by accepting that there is local, independent motion of stars and galaxies. But how can we know this without trusting the spectral line data? And then this is me interjecting. What they mean here is that the geocentrists, at least some of them, seem to accept that red-shifted and blue-shifted light can be used to detect the motions of objects that are reasonably close to us. Uh, I don't know how far they claim it works and how far it doesn't work, but they seem to accept this at some level. But then what the CMI article is pointing out, they utterly reject the exact same evidence for objects that appear to be farther away. Again, it's sort of a cherry-picking of what evidence you want to believe. Moving on with the quote, And what are the limitations of local motion on the geocentric model? Clearly the stars are not fixed in relation to one another. What then holds them in their respective places as they whirl around the Earth at incredible speeds? Why do neighboring stars orbit at the same rate as distant galaxies when there is a multi-billion-fold difference in their respective distances? What causes them to orbit once a day when some are very close compared to others and nothing is fixing them in place with respect to one another? And, if a nearby stellar object, those with the greatest gravitational effects impinging on the Earth, have relative motion, how much of a potential effect would this have on balancing Earth at the center of the universe? It's a pretty good inconsistency to point out, and while it's not something that you can necessarily measure easily on your own, this is an experiment that a high school science class probably could do. The fourth point under the non-Newtonian claims is this. It pains us to note that many of the geocentrists do not believe in the moon landings. If one has to reject so much operational science in order to explain the universe, science cannot then be used to explain the universe. So, why bother to try to build a scientific model at all? This is their greatest Achilles heel. Again, pot, meet the kettle. In another section, they also complained that geocentrists cherry-picked their arguments. They wrote, quote, We noticed several examples of cherry-picking, the act of arbitrarily picking and choosing different explanations for the same phenomenon. We also called it stamp-collecting, which made many people mad. But it's clearly what they were doing. There are other arguments that CMI made and talked about, but... I think that that's about it that I think is really worth discussing in this episode, and we're already almost at the 20-minute mark. At a basic level, I hope that what you got from this main segment is some more examples of why geocentrism doesn't make any sense and falls apart with even a small bit of critical investigation. The second bit that I hope you took from this episode is that just because you may have a belief that's significantly outside of the mainstream on one thing, that does not mean that your beliefs on everything must be wholly discarded. But third is the amount of cognitive dissonance that must be held within the minds of creationists at CMI, well, and elsewhere. Here is how they end their second article, quote, the geocentrist goes too far in rejecting sound scientific theory and data. In the end, they are left with a universe that cannot be explained scientifically. It is a mysterious universe that cannot be comprehended through direct observation and analysis, for what is true in one place cannot be true in another. Because of this, we want to encourage everyone to put on their thinking caps and realize that the geokinetic model is simply a better explanation of the facts. 
it satisfies multiple criteria as faithful science. End quote. I always try to encourage people to put on their proverbial thinking caps. You should be doing that with what you may see on a creationist website, what you hear from me, and with what you see and hear in your daily life. As promised last time, I have a lot of feedback that I'm going to address in this episode. Uh, This is under the general category of general to the show, as opposed to specific to any particular episode. Jay, from Illinois, USA, wrote in to suggest a future episode on whether the moon was artificially created. He sent me a link to a PDF of a book called Who Built the Moon? by Christopher Knight and Alan Butler. I had heard interviews that they gave on a few shows back when their book first came out, but I never really thought that their interviews were, well, coherent enough to really pull an episode from. But with a copy of their book, I now have this on my request list. Lance wrote in from Ohio, also USA, sending me some rather obscure photos that were rescanned from negatives from Roswell, New Mexico from 1947. There's allegedly text shown on paper or other material in one of the photos, but no one's been able to read it, and he wanted to know if anything I know from all of the image processing that I do could decipher it. The answer is no. I took a look, but it looks as though the film grain is just too large, such that uh, the size of the noise, think of it as the analog form of a pixel, is comparable to the size of the letters, so I can't really tell anything. If there were multiple photos of the exact same object, then you could combine them to pull something out, but I don't really think that you can really get anything out of this one. Or if you can, it's beyond what I can do, but forensic photography is its an interesting subtopic. Matthew from Somerset, UK, wrote back in January of 2017 with questions from his daughter. Some of them may be applicable to other listeners or people that they know, so I thought that I'd address them in the show. First up, if you're interested in geology and astrophysics, how do you combine them into a single interest? The answer is that you can't, unless you get more specific. I talked a lot about Pluto and New Horizons on the show, but my experience on the mission taught me a lot of things, and one of them is a good rule of thumb delineation. Around May of 2015, Pluto went from being an astrophysical object to a geophysical object. In other words, you can't do geology on a speck of light, and that's all that Pluto was really until May of 2015. So you could study exoplanets, which are objects that are beyond the solar system, but you can't do geology on them with any sort of technology that we know of now, or even really have on the drawing boards, because they're never going to be more than a speck of light. Next, her interest in geology focuses on volcanism and whether life could exist in lava. The study of that would be the study of extremophiles, which are organisms that are able to exist in what we normally think of as an extreme environment for life that, well, life shouldn't be able to exist in, such as extreme cold, heat, acidity, alkalinity, high or low pressures, even the vacuum of space, or perhaps uh, very, 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 very low pressures of space. My thesis advisor, Brian Heenick, who I interviewed in episode 55, studies this, as in extremophiles, as one of his main areas of research. He does field work at volcanoes where he goes in and samples them. 
um, not actual lava, but deposits that are inside sometimes of the cones of, well, almost active volcanoes, or even active like the day he leaves, or two weeks before he gets there. Uh, fortunately, I was not a grad student on that project, so my research did not depend on whether or not a volcano happened to be active that week. The third question is, what do you need to study and what kinds of careers can you get into if you pursue astrophysics? The answer is to study physics and astronomy. Astro and physics. Kind of in the name. My undergraduate degree was a major in astronomy, double minor in physics and geology. You don't have to specialize until midway through graduate school, and you can always switch, even after you get your PhD. The answer to careers is a lot of different ones also. You can teach, you can do research, operate telescopes, build instruments, operate missions, do outreach for universities or space organizations, or lots of other different kinds of things. When I entered graduate school, 11 were in my class. Seven graduated with a PhD for leaving along the way. Of those seven of us, one is working on outreach at the Space Telescope Science Institute, one is teaching astronomy at a basic teaching college. One is a systems engineer at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. A fourth is a data scientist somewhere. A fifth works with the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. A sixth teaches grade school in D.C., Washington, D.C. And then there's me, who does basic science research and works on at least two NASA missions. Surprisingly, of the seven of us who got through the same degree and uh, the same astrophysics department, I think that I'm the only one who still does basic science research. To me, personally, that's surprising because I definitely did not consider myself among the quote-unquote smartest in the group. Uh, I had among the most trouble with some of the math classes and had to get a lot of help from fellow graduate students. But that doesn't necessarily matter in what your end career is. And me being really the only one who's still doing basic science research, that's perfectly fine. Uh, even if you go all the way through and get a PhD in a basic science field, that doesn't mean that you're stuck doing research for the rest of your life. It's the skills that you learn along the way and how to solve problems that makes you more employable, more marketable. Unless you're like me and just got a PhD drawing circles. The fourth question is how scientists get their funding. I think I just kind of answered that right now, and I also addressed it in episodes 126 and 131. The fifth question are career options other than research, and I already answered that. So that was a lot, uh, but hopefully it's useful to more than just Matthew, and also it's useful to Matthew and his daughter. I've also gotten feedback on Twitter. For a while, we were discussing Crow 777's inane and insane claims, and there is a chance that I'm going to do a special bonus episode on it, where I experiment with a new format for the show to address certain really, really, really crazy claims. Uh, at, off the top of my head, the thought for the type of bonus episode, uh, the name that I'm going to call it, is along the lines of not even wrong. And the style is going to be a little bit like Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, because it's going to be a little bit less, um, how shall I say it, uh, less polite than my normal discourse, that's why I'm going to relegate it to bonus episodes, uh, If assuming I end up doing it, and at least uh, for the start. So we'll see what happens. 
Also recently on Twitter, uh, Aaron requested an episode on Buzz Aldrin's statements about a monolith on Phobos, so I put that down in the episode requests and may find a way to tie that together with a larger set of claims, or perhaps just stick it in a clip show. I also got a recent question from Gravity Sucks on the Belgab forum. He wrote, Why do most impact craters appear to be circular when probability would seem to dictate that many impacts occur at an angle to the surface instead of perpendicular? Probably seems intuitive to you based on all of the impacts you've analyzed, but it is something that has always made me wonder. Why don't we see more elongated trenches dug out by impacts that of an angle other than 90 degrees? In response, it's true that the average expected angle of an impact is 45 degrees. In other words, uh, halfway between 0 and 90. Impact craters form from hypervelocity impacts, where the impactor, when it strikes, it's moving faster than it and the ground can react. This is called it's moving faster than the sound speed of the material. Sound speed isn't just how fast sound travels, it's how fast each adjacent molecule in a material can move to let the ones next to it know that something has happened. That means that your intuition about what quote-unquote should happen goes away. In a hypervelocity impact, almost nothing matters except for the total kinetic energy of the impactor. Direction doesn't matter. It would in a non-hypervelocity impact, though. Uh, you do start to see elliptical craters, though, when the impactor hits about um, below 5 to 10 degrees relative to the surface. At that point, it's moving so fast relative to the surface along the surface that it no longer really is like a point explosion. It actually does kind of dig that trench and explodes along it. Everything else being equal... That's only about 5-10% to 10 though of the time, if you sort of round to nice numbers. Observations support that about 5-10% to 10 of craters are reasonably elliptical, uh, of an ellipticity that we would expect based on numerical simulations of elliptical craters as well as these impact probabilities. So that was perhaps a very confusing response, uh, but basically the short and sweet answer is that it's a point explosion basically. And when that point explodes, nothing matters except for the energy. The direction doesn't matter. It only starts to matter when it's a really, really, really low grazing impact. And based on simulations and based on the probability of those grazing impacts, simulations match the observations and vice versa, which is always a good thing. All right, uh, with feedback out of the way for this episode, I'm going to make one announcement as we round out the uh, half hour. Perhaps the biggest question that all of you may be thinking of, at least those of you who listen to the episodes when they immediately come out, is, am I ever going to get back on schedule? Uh, these episodes have slowly been drifting, such that they're now coming out about three weeks after they actually say they are. Uh, the answer is, we shall see. I still have hopes of getting back on track, but if that does not happen, then what I'll just do is a, a simple reset, and I'll put out one for the month in question, or something like that, and just go from there. So, with that said...
That wraps up this topic for the 162nd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, and I finally remembered to record an outro and didn't have to do it on a crappy microphone back in my other computer. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little or a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, not that you learned a lot and a little at the same time, but that you enjoyed it and learned a lot or a little at the same time. Um, anyway, for more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me at pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, astro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and sometimes even get to it on the show. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast service or website of choice. If you liked it, then also tell friends family members, and two random people you'll never meet in real life. 